Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Limitless Mike, host of the Comics and Pop-Tarts podcast channel, and I'm here with Travis Webb, the creator. Is it, is it right for me to say creator or co-creator of Starlight? Co-creator. Co-creator. So your partner is Greg Smith, correct? Yep, Greg Smith. And actually, Brett Waddell is also a creator. He, uh, he had some oh. of the original inspiration on this. Okay, he has amazing artwork. I just got done looking at his page, and oh my goodness... Can he do some some watercoloring and some other very awesome art? I, I might have to he buy is. some of his prints. Well, he's uh, he's quite famous for who he is. He uh, he was one of the co-creators of the movie of uh, the comic that led to the movie Surrogates with Bruce Willis. Oh wow! He was an artist on Southland Tales. Okay. So uh, he's a he's a pretty big gun. So he knows how to make his comics look theatric because his oh. goal is to have every comic he works on become a movie. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and uh, your, your, your entire team, man, you, uh, Greg Smith, uh, Brett Waddelli. Am I saying that right? Waddelli. Waddelli. OK. Waddelli and uh, David Moore. And I know in issue two, you guys picked up a cover artist, uh, Jenny Ayub. Ayub? Yep. Ayub? Jenny Ayub, who worked yeah. on Steven Universe and Gum- Adventures of Gumball and uh, oh. Adventure Time. Man, those shows were like not iconic. But towards the end of my um, youth youth adulthood, those were some of the things that I kind of fell asleep to. And um, they're really silly. My, my kids really like the Steven Universe. Um, and it's 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 like, oh, that's so great. It's so much better than SpongeBob. I'm so glad they like uh, very science fiction type uh, intelligent or intellectual shows, even though it's for course humor for kids. Um, they can't get enough of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, she was just a great, you know, the, the good thing is that all the people we add to the team are fans and they read the comic because they're friends of ours and they read the comic and almost everyone who's worked on the comic has read the entire series because it's already complete. Right. Um, so they already know the end. So they, when they go in to do that cover art, we tell them, bring what inspires you from reading the comic. Oh, nice. And and then you know, as a as a writer myself, when uh, when I was going through school, that's that's one thing they teach you to do: write what you know, um, not what you think you know. And the reason that is is because the more of yourself you put on the page, the more connection you get with the audience. And right. and I totally feel this uh, in the first issue of Starlight. Um, it, it was it was awesome. I just got done reading it. I don't know how much you want to talk about. <laughs> oh, uh, we can we can talk about all the issues we're up uh, to as far as I'm concerned. I okay. try not to talk about the issue coming out. I just right. talk, right. I'll talk about past issues because it's always my hope that even though you hear some spoilers in the past issues, it right. might inspire you to catch up with us. Yeah. Well, I've I've I'm, I'm at issue two right now. Um, I had I had a few errands to run today, but I, I just got done with issue one, and it's still pretty fresh. Man, I love the. <laughs> I love the uh, the news the news intro, and then yeah. um, him trying uh, him trying to find these these superhero superhero um, the ultra ultra kids, um, the brother and sister, and, and towards the end, I was just like, man, who's the other superhero? And I guess that's going to be in the next episode of the Lost and Found show, which I think is really unique that you have like your own media show going on in this in this piece of in this piece of medium which is technically a piece of media as well it's <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> and i was just like man this this guy knows how to make people smile i love that because uh, i'm an enthusiastic guy and i love to make people smile and that's if you can make someone smile then you consider that person a friend for life and uh, yeah 
Well, you know, what's funny is that 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 setup was really complicated to write, but it was such a good tool to use to get you sped up quickly into their world. Yeah. That I, I didn't want to shy away from it. But, you know, getting that to page, basically trying to show a YouTube video show <laughs> on yeah. comic book and panels was really a lot of work and a lot of, you know, back and forth between me and Greg and Brett. But what's funny is, I, I won't say who it is, but somebody very famous in the comic book industry, that's what they loved. They were like, this is really advanced stuff. Yeah. yeah. He's like, he's like, where did you guys come from? Like, we've been around forever, man. We haven't got to your level, you know? Just because we're not playing at your level doesn't mean we don't know how to be pros. Yeah, and the gatekeepers were keeping us in. Now we're here. What would you think? <laughs> I'm kicking in the doors with my, my, my comic book, with YouTube video in the comic book. <laughs> man, when um when uh, she answers the door for for the uh, uh, Jimmy and she's like, mom, there's creepers at the door. I was just like, you know what? I, I took a closer look at his design. I'm like, yeah, 1970s uh, journalism <laughs> at, at its best right here. The guy's got the big nose and the, the classic TV cable glasses and the the the, the, the pedophile looking, looking mustache. And I was like, man, that joke was perfectly set up. I, I laughed my butt off when she slammed the door in his face so it's like that's that's awesome <laughs> and it's so it's so it's so fresh to see writers who know how to play back and forth between characters you don't really get that a whole lot in some of the independent comics no offense to independent comics but a lot of them are like um a lot of them are like um superhero revamps and reboots and there's just like a lot of action and there's a lot of plot and it's it's fresh to have some com comedic relief in between the action and the and the mystery and the adventure <laughs> Because you have to take a moment from the story and you have to pause and be like, there has to be substance and depth to the story and characters that you're reading about. And man, I, I knew as soon as I, I got onto the campaign that um, once I saw the art and then I looked at some of the sample pages, I was like, man, I, I got to read this. It's like it starts on Earth, but it came from space. And the depth of um, the depth of size that you use at the beginning of issue one, where you're like narrating the beginning and it's like out in space and it goes into Earth and then it goes to what all, all the ultra kids were fighting, all the different types of monsters. It was it was almost like I was watching a movie. <laughs> that's, that's Brett, man. He knows. How. So, you know, when when you write uh, comic books, I've been writing comic books with my friends as a consultant and sometimes as a ghostwriter, uh, you know, to help them out and get through things. Because uh, I've been working, I've worked off and on in Hollywood for a while. But Brett and I met uh, working on, on a film project that didn't come to fruition uh, okay. with a big studio. And because uh, at the time, they were really trying to get me to become something. And I, I, I kind of bombed out, let's be honest. I got the classic writer story. I went to Hollywood and I bombed. Um, but like what came out of that is my approach to writing comic books, especially because I love the medium. Right. Uh, and that my approach is I don't write to the audience. I write letters to Brett and I let okay. Brett write to the audience. Oh, that's, and that's really the trick. Okay. So, so it's like, it's like, and I learned this in intro to comics with Andy Schmidt and he said, one of the, one of the ways to connect with your artist is pretend like you're writing a letter to him. His, his words, exactly what you just said. So, right. It's so awesome to see that first full circle moment, come back around and, and be cemented um, in legitimacy. That's, that's pretty cool. Oh, and yeah, then I make jokes in there towards Brett. Uh, I make comments <laughs> about VHS times, uh, something we watched in a VHS movie at one point. 
point. Yeah. Uh, I, I take out specific scene and time scene and timestamps to get some imagery in his head. You know, I'm like, hey man, this is what inspired me here. Uh, the last issue was written with a song. Uh, on purpose so that when you read it the song will play through if you're reading it at a, at a at a decent rate the song should actually play on beat with it and oh, wow. i told brett that i'm like so when you're doing the art think about that think about how that song i wrote that to that song to have the same pacing as that song you know wow. so the secret weapon is putting the image in the artist's mind that's actually more difficult than it is simple and everybody should know that who's listening oh, even yeah. though it, even though it's really cool and or it's, even though it's really easy to talk to somebody it's not as easy as putting the image in their head especially for artists who have to put it onto paper so i thought that i think that's really creative that, that you kind of looking for different types of inspirations from other mediums to make notes to your artists to help uh, vibe the image together for the comic that's really cool yeah it's it's so important because here's the thing especially when I, i'm working with uh newer writers a lot of indie writers still come ah, so weird uh i hate saying this because this is my first major ip out there and it ended up being a kickstarter so of a major publisher but right. for years now i've been i've been pulled in as a friend of you know hey i got a guy who can help you out with your comics because you're having problems with the story you're stuck and the thing i see over and over again is you know writers don't understand their relationship to artists and they don't understand what an artist does and that's that's the problem there in this medium the art is key you know the art brings right. them in the story keeps them those are the two things you always want to remember right art right. brings them in story keeps them so there are things you got to think about does your artist is your artist going to actually read the book or is your artist going to work page to page in instruction sets a lot of artists especially from like mexico and south america they they first of all they struggle you know to begin with with the story sometimes but they read page to page and that's going right. to happen with a lot of newer artists, especially, especially work for a higher artist. If you're just hiring a, a writer, a artist that you met online, they're going to work for page from page. They're not going to actually see the story coherently from end to end as a narrative. Right. So you have to remember that when you're writing your pages out. So you've got to be very direct. You've got to tell them how many panels you want, right? You want to tell them the order of the panels sometimes or why you're doing things with panels. You want to explain why why you want these panels to be set this way. Maybe you're setting timing, or maybe you're trying to expose something on the next page, right? You got to make them aware. And it, more importantly, anything you can't hide anything from the artist, right? You know, people will do things like I saw this one time. And I always use it as an example. And he's like, "There's a mysterious figure in the background. We don't know who it is." <laughs> okay, well that's fine, but who is it? Because the artist <laughs> needs to know. Because the artist needs to know because they need to know how to set that mysterious silhouette in the background so it right. makes sense later when he has to expose it. Don't hide that from them. Right. You know, they're not the audience. They're your artist. And you yeah. got to remember that. Hit the space bar and put it in parentheses. Right. And then make a notation like we're going we're to reveal him on like page six. So if you don't do that and you go to page six and from page three and you're like um, you actually put the name of the mysterious figure, they're like, OK, um, so on page six, um, do we put the silhouette for the mysterious figure or who who is Jamie Quinn? Yeah. You're like, oh, it, it takes two days to relate this information because of time zone difference. And so you wasted two days for one page uh, that could have been done two days ago and he could be on page like eight by now. Yeah, that, yeah. and that happens. And then there's tricks with the medium. Like if you're going to use a medium trick, right? Like I, I use parallel um, panels a lot uh -huh. in order to have the same emotional state 
So it triggers the memory of something that happened in a previous issue or previous page of that issue. Right. Right. And I like doing that a lot. So when I do that, I always make sure that if it's a big series and say it's two issues back or three issues back, Mm -hmm. I always go back before I give it to the artist and say, here, this page is going to be paralleled in issue seven. So be aware, you know, of what you're doing here because you're going to have to recreate it later in the series. Right. Right. So the most important thing to really take away from that is communicate with your artists. Don't hold yeah. anything back. And, write to um, the artist. Let the artist write to the audience. Yeah, that's that's very creative the way you do it, though. Um, I, I learned um, I learned how to plot and page from from Andy Schmidt and Paula Lore was kind of like the assistant teacher in that class. And um, so I've been I've been reading old scripts from things that I could download off of various sites on the Internet that, that are legit from you know previous image comics, DC comics, not so much Marvel. They really like their IPs, so they don't put anything out there on the Web, really. But unless you're on Reddit, they might copy and paste some stuff on that and leak some stuff. So I've been I've been kind of trying to study the the various types of script formats out there because there's really not a, a, um, a solicited concrete format for it's not like writing film or, 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 or movies, right? Right. There's no standardization. Right. So so you, from artist to artist, your, your scripts could probably vary in, in style and format. And so it's always important to keep that communication. And that's why I've been studying different various types of scripts, because I've been studying not just the script itself, but the notations they make in there. So some of the some of the, the mock scripts I find online actually have notes and stuff. And from the some of the ones that, you know, I got from class online which is really cool but um i was gonna say i i've kind of like greg and i use a script that kind of blew another guy's mind uh because we we have an optimized script that we like because we've worked on so many different properties at this point so we just stole all the stuff we thought was best you know (laughs) Uh, it's a mashup of all the best uh best ways to look at a script Right. And what's funny is we've gotten so comfortable with our script and the way it is and the way we send it off to press. When we see, uh, like, sometimes we'll get a style guide from a publisher to work with, and the style guide will have their script style guide. And we'll be like, eh, I don't want to, you know, like, you don't want to write in that because it doesn't have any of the tricks that we have in our in our format. You know, right. like, I don't like left just justified um uh, character names with the text to the right. I know mm-hmm. some writers and artists like that, but I center justify the title and the name so you can so that my letterer can identify it easily from the rest of the script. Right. So you don't have to make a separate PDF or, or document with the list of just the lettering. Right. Um, I, I know in the industry they do that too. They'll write the script and then just for the letter they'll make a script with nothing but um, anything that has to be lettered, whether it be SFX or um, narration captions, right, um, or uh, um, um, dialogue as, as well. And if you do it right, it's really easy to export that out of the uh, out of the file. You know, right, right application. Yeah, um, and they they love it. You know, because they just trying everybody in the industry who's helping you. They also have deadlines. They're just trying to get stuff done. So you just right. got to make it as clean and as easy as possible for them. Yeah, I'm starting starting to catch on. The industry is like uh, a lot of these basic foundation rules that they stick out there. They're 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 more like what do they say in Pirates of the Caribbean? It's more like guidelines. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And then once they're you get in like there, it's just like it's, it's just like once you get in there, they're just like we really don't 
cares unless they have like a specific style guide like you said uh just as long as you can get it done fast like <laughs> it's all about stamina once you're in the door you just yeah. have to show them you could do the basics before you step in i'll tell you what's weird is just between you and me is there are some script styles that i just can't believe get made in the comics and they're it blows my mind. I mean, there's a couple of people out there who write basically prose in big paragraphs in chunks mm. and just describe the page. And then it feels more like mini novels. And I'm just like, wow, man, how do your artists deal with that? Like, like, I'm not trying to be mean, but I just I could never, ever write a comic book like that. You know, I um, um when I was doing my internship, um, there were, there was an IP that I copy edited. And, um, when he said he was, we wanted to make a comic with it. I was like, okay, so you want me to like, write Like, Oh, they're going to reformat this, this feature into a comic script. It's like, no, I just wanted to copy edit it. We're going to send it to, you know, it's already been sent off to the artist. I'm like, cool. And then he let me in on some of the, the sequentials and I was like, man, this is a talented artist. I've never seen an artist break down a film formatted script from final draft into a full fledged, like mini series comic. I was like, Holy crap. That's really talented. Dude, Cause most of the time, they want it to where, like you said, you're you're describing this just to your artist who's got to do all these sequentials and visuals. And it's up to them to relate the message on the page so it makes sense for the reader. Well, it's both y'all's responsibility, but mainly the artist's is responsible for the visual side of it. And I was, I've never seen anybody break down from a film script before. And then there's some people who are so super basic with with scripting that they they use the most basic adjectives or action verbs without any description and their comic still looks really cool. So it's just like, I guess it's a balance of freedom and space and style and format. And I guess it depends on. Yeah, I I guess I guess it depends on who the artist is, really. Yeah. A lot of artists carry a lot of writers. I, you know, when I was working in Hollywood, there, I'm going to tell you something that's probably going to make me look bad, but there's a negative attitude towards people who write comic books by screenplay writers like WGA guys. Mm. And the reason why is what you just said. You know, they're not seen as guys that put enough effort into their storytelling and into their, into their practice. Yeah. To be able to write a decent story for a screenplay, and right. that is why you—that's why when your you, when your property gets picked up, it's almost always handed off to an A-list writer who's going to structure it correctly for film right. and take the time to do things to make it fun. Because a lot of times they don't buy uh, comic book properties because they like the story; they like the concept, and you own the concept, and that's all they're really interested in. Oh, that's super sad. I know, I know, I know, I know of a few IPs that have legitimately made it to on screen. Um, The anime that James Cameron picked up, I know that was adapted from the manga version. And um, Battle Angel, yeah. When Alita came to to the screen, I I think that was one of the most honest adaptations from the graphic novel to the screen that I've ever seen. So much so that it still has some of the problems that they that the first book had. The first ma- manga uh, volume for Alita is is kind of problematic with some tropes, mm. um, and they kind of come out. And they're the things that I always thought Alita suffered for, or Gun Dream or Gundam uh, Gun Dream, um, um, and 
that was the I think that hurt the film a little bit at the beginning okay. because she's so childlike wanderer mm. at the beginning. And we've had so many characters in film like that. I call them the bewildered warriors women. They're mm. women that are really badass, but have some hidden past that they're not dealing with. Mm. And they can kick ass, but they can't like take care of themselves for some reason. And like that, the- like the beginning of Resident Evil or Fifth Element, or uh, all all the uh, what was the other one I was thinking about? Uh, the the movies with the the cowboys in space. Joss Whedon's characters. Joss Whedon writes that bewildered warrior in every book, every thing he touches. Hmm. Um, so, Alita, because Alita was, I think, Alita came out before it became a heavy trope. So when her movie finally comes out, she has that trope, but it it makes the first 30, 40 minutes of that film feel a little bit soft. And I think that damaged it in the box office a little bit. Mm. I, I really hope they come out with a, with a, with a sequel, to be honest, I never read the manga. Oh, I'm I just, did. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of James Cameron. Yeah. And for him to, for him to take time off of whatever he's doing outside of making films to make a film and even be in it, which I thought he did a great job. Well, let um, me, let me tell you something really quick. May I? Yeah, go ahead. The insider stuff here. Uh, so first thing is that um, I hope they make a new one, too, because honestly, when, once the movie kicked in and we got past the first volume of Alita and into the second volume of, of Alita, where the story, in my opinion, gets better mm-hmm. and those tropes kind of go away. That's when it got good. And that movie feels amazing in that second half. But the third volume, which is the, the rollerball volume where she falls in love with the champion and she has the different armor and it's a sporting event. It's about sacrifice and figuring out who you are and growing up. That's the best story in that first part of the, the first part of Alita, that third volume. And that's where the movies should be landing at this point. If he does another one. So that's great. But what's interesting about James Cameron is I got two really interesting points. First, he bought that license like in 1999 or 2000. I remember because I was already a huge Alita fan. Oh, wow. I had been importing the comic as a teenager and <laughs> obsessed over her. And so when James Cameron bought it, I was super excited. Now, here's what's funny. Alita from James Cameron had already been made into a property before. And you probably oh, don't even remember. No. It was Dark Angel. Dark no. Angel is Alita. But the television product, television studios said that they didn't think audiences could relate to a robot girl. What? So that is why Dark Angel feels a little bit about Alita, but it also has that a- angel, battle angel, dark angel, dark brown hair, yeah. dark brown eyes, small other leather, full body leather suit, dark brown. <laughs> so Dark wow. Angel was his first attempt at bringing Alita to market. Yeah, that was right before I started junior high in 2000, uh, ran for two seasons. You know, that that that's almost as shocking as me finding out they had a Mortal Kombat series in the 90s as well, as big as a fan as I was of their movies. That's that is wickedly wild, man. I feel like yeah. Mandela effect just happened. <laughs> Another interesting thing we were just talking about uh, scripts. Go look up James Cameron's screenplay style. So. He has something known. He has his own screenplay format that he's uh-huh. known for. And what he does is he writes out the scenes and then finishes them on the set with his actors. Oh, really? Yeah. He might put key points of conversation that need to take place in the scene to move the narrative along. But in general, 
his it's more like reading a treatment than a screenplay okay even the dialogue like there's no dialogue yeah take a look if you get a chance if any of your listeners do go look up james cameron's screenplays and there's articles about his 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 approach and part of it is he i think if i understand it correctly from my own experience down there is he knows what he wants from the story. He knows what he wants from the characters. But until he gets on the set and sees the visual and sees the actors in costume and hears and sees how they're going to play the characters, he doesn't like to get locked into an absolute. And because he's James Cameron, he doesn't freaking have to. Yeah, he's got all that all that uh, fu money from uh, making from the Titanic, and then you know he started that that uh that camera company and then he made the subs and man that that dude's just an entrepreneur all the way around yeah crazy he used to be a truck driver well you yeah, right <laughs> long haul cush started building sets for me one day <laughs> from turning wrenches to sneaking into the the la college to print out film uh film projects in the office i i, I have books on this guy i wrote a paper on him at college um i'm not a I'm not one of those roadie fans that would, you know, if he came to my town, I would stalk him forever. I'm just, yeah, I'm, in, yeah, I'm, in fa- <laughs> I'm infatuated with the way he thinks. And, and I was kind of surprised when I found out that Avatar um, was actually written on his shelf before he even started working on Titanic. But he was just waiting on the technology. And I was like, man, if he had just wrote a novel and threw that out there, that could have been in circulation at least. Well, you know, what's what's important to him, again, is that visualization thing, yeah. right? So if you think about Titanic and what I just told you about his screenplay writing, then yeah. it makes sense that he had to shoot a three-quarter scale Titanic because that's part of his process. It's part of where he gets his dialogue from. He looks at the situation. He can physically see it, touch it, taste it, and then it gives him a better idea of what the actual social interaction within that environment would take place. Right. Right. I mean, I hope he sold all that because that's a that's a that's a hefty storage, hefty storage uh, rental fee every month. So he went to Burning Man one time and his camp, he was only there, I think, one day out of the time he was there. But he had bodyguards with him. I I don't think you get the point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It doesn't sound like it. (laughs) He was like, oh, this is really cool with the armor. Guard, armed guards walking around with him. <laughs> wow. I, I don't know what he was wearing because I didn't see him or anything. I just, some of his people go to Burning Man. They have a camp together and they all sit around and talk about how amazing and genius and how proud they are to work of him and how all, and they, all, they always want to tell anyone who wanders into their camp their story about the first day they were hired there. So they were telling me that he was there and I was thinking about it and the way they described it, I just imagined him in like a full suit with sunglasses on with dudes in suits with sunglasses walking around Burning Man <laughs> with people constantly dusting off the ply to make sure his suit keeps color. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, you gave him the presidential image there. That sounds more, that sounds along the lines of Bill Gates. Only his bodyguards would be in HVAC suits because he's a germaphobe. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> so uh, I kind of, I kind of skipped the the basic question because we were vibing, which is oh, really yeah. awesome. I'm, I'm going to go back and replay this so I could write this down in my notes of James Cameron's life and add that to the back of the book that I have. <laughs> oh man, totally go look at the screenplays, man. It's a trip. I actually have a few links up right now. I'm going to read them later. But um, so what what I usually do for new creators um, like yourself uh, that are on the the show, you're not a new creator by all means. Um, 
is uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got into writing comics, which I think you explained from from bombing in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, then to, get, to getting into writing comics. But maybe you can get more um, more into detail uh, if there's any other detail to explain. And um, what are some of the things that uh, that influenced you to become a creator growing up? Obviously, Alita Bad An- Battle Angel was one of them. <laughs> Well, you know, no one's really asked those questions before, oddly enough, on the podcast. So I would love to tell me. <laughs> yes. So, you know, there's a there's a saying in Hollywood that if you're a writer, don't write a movie about being a writer because everyone had that same experience. And there's some truth to that. Mm. So, like, uh, I, I don't know if you think about this, but think about how many movies that you've seen in your life where the lead character is some kind of writer in Hollywood. And it's usually something kooky and crazy and how crazy everything is as they're coming up in Hollywood. That's a really common trope because every writer who goes to Hollywood thinks they have a unique experience. But here's the truth. No, it's like that for everyone. <laughs> it's fucked up. <laughs> so um, so I'll, but I, to share my story, since I'll never make a movie about it, because like I said, everyone's already lived it. Uh, I will tell you the story. I, I started writing comic books when I was a kid, like most people. They'll tell you, oh, yeah, I started writing comic books when I was in high school with my cousin. I did. I started writing comic books in high school with my cousin. I I used to even draw my own comics back then all through high school. And oh, I would, wow. like, make little ash cans, you know, print them out on the school printer and fold them up and staple them myself and pass them out through the high school. I was very proud of myself. They were terrible. Um and uh, when I got out of high school and I tried to go to, I, I was working at a comic book shop off and on for a couple of years. Then uh, I was, I was kind of in foster care and homeless for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, family issues. People have families and mine weren't getting along for the rest of my life. And so <laughs> basically I was kind of couch surfing and part-time working at a gas station and at a comic shop. And the owner's wife of the comic shop was like, what are you doing? You're like 18. You're not doing anything with your life. Why don't you go to college? And I'm like, I don't know how to go to college. Like, you know, like I'm a foster right. kid at this point, right? Like, that's, that seems like an astronomical reach to me. <laughs> you know, like, That's something spacemen do. They go to college, right? So right. she literally put me in a car because she taught at the, at the local community college, drove me to the community college, and sat down there with me all day while she enrolled me. <laughs> What? Yeah. Wow. It said I couldn't hang out in the comic book shop or, or, or work there anymore unless I stayed in school. So, <laughs> man, I mean that that worked out for so many people. I mean, look at the entire cast of um, of uh, the comic book men. Really? I, mean, I didn't see that. The comic book man, the the with uh, uh, Kevin Smith is Kevin Smith's uh, um, the stash. Uh, it ran for seven seasons. Uh, it's basically a giant podcast at the end of it. Oh man, um, I, didn't, I didn't. I don't I have no idea. Oh, I do remember that being on. I just didn't follow it. Yeah, yeah. I get well, kind of wrapped ba- up in my own stuff. It's it's basically um, some some more of, of Kevin's of Kevin Smith's friends. They they started a comic a comic book store that was kind of like that was kind of like a um, a pawn shop. And um, man, they they they've all the, the people who are there like me and Mike Zabsik, they have been there for like as 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 long as the store's been open i can't even remember and now they all have like individual uh followings uh ming chen uh he 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 man he's a podcaster like no other he goes from comic-con to comic-con to comic-con 
all year round doing all sorts of crazy things. And he just started at the shop just to help out and pull switches and stuff. And, and he, he was like the brunt of the comic book shop joke, but he loved comics and playing video games. And that's just, that's what he does with his life. Now it's, it's actually quite fascinating. So, I mean, you could have, you could have been one of those people that hung out at the comic shop and, and eventually met somebody and then got your start. And then you would have got your claim to fame and following too. So I'm just, I'm just letting you know that that could have worked out. So if she ever, asks you just be like i could have been that person i could have been i did end up meeting richard garfield and Ooh, nice he had just get, gotten ready to sell magic and robo rally and the next thing i knew it was a play tester so my name is in several of the books related awesome. to the original books for magic the gathering and i was one of the original play test team holy crap that is yeah awesome. that's a weird thing ask me anything about magic i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you know, I play tested for a long time, uh, for magic, the gathering. So that was just a weird experience, you know, like it, Richard ended up becoming very rich and moving away and magic, the gathering became magic, the gathering, you know, it's um, everywhere now. Yeah. And I always wondered like if he would recognize me, if he ever saw me again, cause he, he did make some comments sometimes up above Woodmasters about how I, how I talked a lot in one of the other testers because most of the testers were much older than me i have no idea why they let this one teenager hang out with them once in a while right. but they once made a circle of protection travis with the play okay. test cards because we could make our own cards that's one that's, thing to do back then that's awesome and, yeah it was basically you tap to shut up all travis's at the table <laughs> <laughs> true story that's awesome dude do you still uh, have that card no, I never had the card. One of them oh, had it, okay. so I'd never – but it was, I started laughing too because the thing is, is Magic the Gathering back then was uh, – the way we did it is Excel spreadsheets that were uh, – you know, uh, had borders uh, set up in them for the blank cards. And then right. you'd put like BBU for black, black, blue, you know, uh, and then our U1, which would be blue and then one of any mana. And then, you know, you put your instructions down below and then people would put like little little uh, gifts or uh, JPEGs that they had found off random sites onto the card. So you see like oh, Bambi okay. on a card or something like that, you know, to, to get an idea of what would be on there as an image. I can't right. remember car had a like, Bambi on it though. Like like yeah. mock cards. You guys were just making mock cards. Well, they're playtest cards because the yeah. game didn't exist yet. Right. Right. Like there wasn't real cards quite yet. And then the real cards came out and we'd have those intermixed with them. And then we didn't really like that. So what we ended up doing is we would just print our own decks completely so that you couldn't tell which cards were from the new deck you were testing and the original set. And that's just how we played Magic, but they would just ship us boxes of cards from from Watsy. You know, because that's how they paid us. They paid us in cards. Boxes wow, and boxes of cards. So I did that. Does it kind of feel cheap? Does it kind of feel cheap now that Richard's got his money and probably sold the IP off to Wizard? I don't oh, know. yeah, he sold that off to Hasbro. Hasbro, okay. So Wizard owned it originally. Then Richard's contract allowed him to buy out Wizards of the Coast because of the way the contract was set up because it, it ended up being so much more profitable and bigger than anyone could have imagined. Oh, man. You know, I think we all met at a Pizza Hut, and he was just trying to sell Robo Rally, and he ended up selling Robo Rally and Magic the Gathering, and no one remembers Robo Rally, so it just heads up there. Um, and I think if I remember, I was a kid, so forgive me, There, someone might hear this and be like, that's not what happened. But 
when I was there, <laughs> if I remember correctly, listening to Richard and those guys talk, Richard's contract was set up so he got percentages on certain milestones or something, right. and he ended up owning Watsy by the time it was over. His company that he created, Richard Garfield Games, ended up owning Watsy, and then he sold Watsy to Hasbro a few years ago. Wow. And the game has changed completely from what it was when we were playing it. Uh, the original concept was the base uh, unlimited deck, if you will, or later, later revised deck. That wasn't supposed to change, and you were going to always be able to play like chess with the base deck. Yeah. And expansions, right, were supposed to run one time and then never run again. So older wizards would have cards, say, 10 years later, where some new kid would be like, where'd that card come from? And you'd be like, this is from Arabian Nights. I got this when I was 16 years old, this spell. And, you know, and you were supposed to play with Annie. So that was part of the fun was Annie. But, yeah, that all changed. I, I don't really understand the game that well anymore. Uh, I am friends with one of the, the judges who travels all over the country. And he he's always talking to me and trying to get me to come play again. But that's a lot of dedication on that game, man. But then, you know, I stopped playing TCGs a long time ago because um, it just it just got too much. Like the the especially especially for games like Yu-Gi-Oh or uh, Duel Masters, um, they just kept on continuing, continuing, and continuing, and then eventually for like tournament play, especially in Yu-Gi-Oh, there's like forbidden cards you couldn't bring no more, and then when you when you get the tournaments, they kind of make it strict. They did this in Magic too, and. Um, I played Magic off and on, not as big as, as like Yu-Gi-Oh and Duel Masters and, and other types of things. Um, I'm excited they brought Digimon back, but I'm just I'm not going to get back into it because it takes so much money now because card packs used to be like one ninety nine. And then by the time I think 2000 came around, card packs were three ninety nine and now they're almost eight bucks for 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 eight unless you're a pokemon fan now you're paying eight dollars for five and i was just like man this this is just i know i know i know marketing is a big part of it and and people don't you know people don't like you to blast that out there but that's just why i stopped playing tcgs it became too expensive the rules became too complicated and once you got the tournament level play it just wasn't fun anymore which you don't really get in tcg in like when tournament on tournament modes and tcg uh contests man it's almost like standing in a golf game if you cough or say whoa go man because they're supporting somebody you get cut you, eyes cut at you as if of, of a butter knife was slicing through through butter and it's just like man this, this is too much negativity i'm gonna go play something fun yeah it, it's changed a lot like my friend that's a judge I've, I've wandered in to see tournaments and stuff i'm just like mm. the tournaments when i was playing were kind of a joke so <laughs> <laughs> And I took full advantage of that. I'm not going to lie. Uh, if we ever want to do a podcast about TCG and get some other like uh, Magic the Gathering people on and we can just share stories, I can tell you how it was when Magic began, alpha and beta periods, and even the first you know couple of expansions. I'll tell you the craziest stories and how that game ever became what it is today is mind-blowing. I, and I guess that's the way it had to go. Because right. looking back now, I used to complain that they changed it too much from its original design. Yeah. But had they not, I don't think it would have grown as big as it is today.
So, so you got you got the college. She she filled you in. I think that was where we left off. Yep. She and signed I you up for up, college. So the, you know, back then I couldn't figure out how to go to college to write comic books because that's all I wanted to do back then. So I ended up going to school for journalism, and then I became a journalist after college, and it was terrible. I hated it. I'm going to be honest. It was the worst experience of my life. Um, I had been a journalist maybe professionally at this point for a month. I was still struggling to get to work on time, and September 11th happened. Oh crap! So I just got—I just started becoming a journalist, and they're like, "Hey, you got to start interviewing these people," and it, and the world's falling apart. And then immediately after that, uh, the anthrax scare happened, <laughs> and I had to cover the anthrax scare. You know, I'm, I'm interviewing you know mailmen who are wearing plastic gloves and like hazmat suits just to deliver the mail out of fear. You know, and then right after that, the D.C. shooter happened. Oh, Jesus. You know, people don't remember, but there was like all these events back to back right after that terrorist attack. Right. You know, and then on top of that, I was interviewing like different agencies because we started looking at things like the Patriot Act and all these other things. And the TSA formed, Homeland Security formed. You know, there was a lot of pushback back then uh, from Republicans because they were just like, hey, maybe not the best idea, but also the president's a Republican. So I'm going to go along with it. So I just I got caught up in that chaos. And I, I tell you what, I quit being a journalist. Yeah. I was like, well, I wasted school. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I ended up um, to, to be to be fair. I started working at uh, a tech company, and I started throwing raves um, because I, I did like to party. I do love to party, so I worked for a major tech company, and I still work in tech in something called knowledge management as a knowledge architect or a knowledge consultant. So okay. I am not going to explain that on your show because it's way complicated stuff that's but okay. it pays the bills <laughs> that's all we needed was the short form on that one <laughs> yeah you know i one of the things i realized when i wanted to get in comic books is as i was working around comic book people all those years was some of my favorite artists and writers never made a living off their properties even when they have movies you know wow, that's and, pretty powerful well you know one of the things that's interesting is there's always a push to do back end points because you're going to make more money if you get back end points. Right. But then the studios always claim they took a loss on the movie and they never pay the back end. <laughs> no movie not. in Hollywood makes money on paper from the accounting sites. Now, they'll tell you to the they'll report to Variety they made money, but on the back end, no movie makes money. So valuable lesson there was if you want to write comic books and you want to do film and stuff, always have a, a side hustle until you make it. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. Um, and the other thing, I think that's why, you know, like you, I was just reading about Scarlett Johansson's uh, lawsuit. And I think that's important because talent isn't making as much money as they should. Right. Uh, because of, uh, there's a there's a push by executives right now to um, for the executives to make money. You know, all these people want to make money, and they don't want to. They want to make money off an IP, but they want to make money off the IP and not giving anything to the creators. And you know, and I I don't I don't I don't like that. And that's that's the second reason why after I finished my master's in 2020, uh, not just the pandemic, but the just the business politics that isn't hasn't been refined for whatever reason 
that that they take advantage of writers, artists, and actors. And and I know we're talking in lump sums of tens, hundreds, and even millions of dollars that they make, but that's I mean that's what they decided to do with their life, and if you look back then what they were paying and and then you take into account the economy that entire state is just way too expensive. Yeah, it's it's too it's too expensive, and and I and I understand that the Disney try to curtail curtail paying actors by by getting extra money by releasing it on Disney Plus. I haven't paid for Disney Access. I'm not paying thirty bucks a month for something that I can wait till it comes out buy it and own it for $20 or I could just watch it for free when it hits Disney plus. That's why yeah. their streaming service is suffering so bad. They're, they're trying to sell all the content they're making to make up for the money they lost for COVID and trying to out getting out of paying actors. And, and I'm, I'm proud of Scarlett Johansson for what she's doing. I know that's not a popular thing to say, but I mean, if it was your money, you'd be fighting for it too. Got to make a living, pay bills, support your family. I mean, sometimes actors don't even get paid for movies until they release. And sometimes you have to rely on what you made in the last film or the last TV show um, to get you afloat before you go there. So they're not really making a whole lot of money because they have to split what they make into segments and and spend it like pretty intelligently or or they go hungry. Well, you know, what I was told when I was down there, the reason actors get paid big is because they never know if this is their last gig. Yeah. I was like, what? I'm like, yeah, because they'll fit this role and maybe and they may never fit a role again in anyone's eyes. Right. So they try to get as big a paycheck as they can to make sure they're covered. Well, I mean, $20 million sounds like a lot to somebody like me who's who's come from, you know, middle class um, as far as the economy is concerned. But I've always found a way to make, even though, you know, I didn't know when my meal was coming next to next and $20 million uh, for one movie that that Robert Downey Jr. in the in the MCU seems like a lot of money. No, it's a huge amount of money. But the thing <laughs> is, if they don't pay her that $20 million, they're still going to have that $20 million. It's yeah. just going to go to an executive who had nothing to do with that film. Yeah, and I don't understand that. That's why I like independent uh, independent comics so much because the creators are the executives, mm-hmm. and so there's not just passion driving it, but they're they're actually picking up the skills to to fall into those roles. Mm-hmm. And they're not. And 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 I'm not going to say not all of them are corrupt. There's some independent comics out there that are doing some shady things. Um, not not anybody that I've met so far. Maybe maybe one or two found in groups but i mean social media can be used as a tool for good or a tool for bad but in independent comics the spirit of independent comics lives in those who want to help others who just want to make comic books they want to make a fair amount they're not ambitious they're not looking for hundreds of millions of dollars you know um some studios they they have they're, they're very happy with what they make a year and it sustains them and a lot of other people uh in comics um they're entrepreneurs they do something on the side i mean I'm, i know writing comics, maybe even drawing them, coloring them, lettering them, whatever your part is in uh, in your in Starlight isn't your only isn't your only entrepreneurial success. I'm sure you have other skills that that benefit you monthly as well. Oh yeah, knowledge I, I did the knowledge thing for big corporations, you know, yeah. and it keeps me able to write Starlight because I'm not starving to right. get Starlight out. It allowed me to turn down, uh, you know, that's one of the things about Starlight. Uh, you, you were saying earlier how it looks cinematic and stuff. And yeah. there, there's a degree of really heavy professionalism because it's made by three professionals, right, who came to Kickstarter because the publisher friends that we had, because that's that's how comics work. Like, I don't know if anyone knows that, but it's not like Hollywood where I have an agent who takes care of stuff for me. In comics, even with Marvel and DC, it's, hey, do you know anybody who can write a Spider-Man issue for us? You know, it's somebody, it's, it's always a friend of a friend 
and that's how you get gigs, right? Wow. That's how you write in comic books. And you, you're work for hire all the time. Uh, unless, of course, you're doing like a, something that's more independent and you're, you're able to be strong enough to go with Image or IDW or something like that, like Boom. Right. Mostly, it's always about networking and being friends with someone, you know, and knowing somebody and having a skill to be good enough to get the job done. But the thing is, is those publishers don't offer great deals because of how unprofessional the generalization of the industry is. So, you know, my two partners have both had pretty good IPs with really good and big publishers, right? But their payouts aren't that great and they don't have a lot of control over those IPs. And so two publisher friends came to us for Starlight. One came to the table and had a pretty okay, I was ready to take the offer, I'll be honest, right? Because I need an IP under my belt right now, right? right. But they were like looking at this like we're not going to have any control. Of, we're not going to have any control. We're losing Starlight if you sign this deal. Mm. Like they're going to probably go off and make a movie and everything else, and you're never going to see a payday after this after this this amount of money. And you know, and we talked about it a lot. So we turned that deal down. You know, and what was interesting is the way they talked about it, the way we talked about it afterwards, and we've heard from other friends is you know they'll probably come back around when we get Starlight done again and offer us the same deal. And then we have to make a decision: did we make enough money off the Kickstarter to sell sell that IP off and lose control over it? Right. That would give us exposure for our next Kickstarter. And but. then it occurred to me that most of these deals that they're handing us creators right now. They're exposure deals. They're they're just light pay and the promise of exposure because next time, next time, you'll get a better deal. But next time just means, no, no, this is more exposure for your next deal. You know, they keep promising bigger and bigger deals with more exposure is what they do. Right. And so we decided to go independent and publish ourselves with Kickstarter for this round. And, and I'll be honest, we've already made more profit on it on the Kickstarter We've had more money go into our individual pockets than we were going to get from that initial payout from that contract. Wow. But the difference is, had we gone with that deal, we may have got less, we might have gotten less money, but we would have had more exposure and I wouldn't be spending eight hours a day trying to promote kick, <laughs> promote my Kickstarter. True, you know? true. And it would probably but, would have sold a thousand issues. And Well, I guess we're at a thousand number ones now. We've sold a thousand issues of number one at this point, but we would have done that with the initial run of no, number one. It's a hard decision process. It is. And, and I think the value of a deal like that would be, is the exposure worth it? So we come down to evaluating what their reach is. And if their reach is worth it, then the next thing you'd have to think about is, do I have another IP like Starlight that needs that exposure? And if that's not well developed and that's not to put together, then your exposure is kind of almost worthless, really, because... Right. Because you have to be ready for that next opportunity, even if you're not ready for that next opportunity, is is what I constantly hear from professionals and in either in the industry and even in the independent side of comics. You have to be ready for that next opportunity. So even if you even if you have one, either the whole arc ready or at least a breakdown of the next story, so it's at least ready to go in some capacity. Don't just be like, okay, well we give you this exposure. What do you got? Well, I have an idea. That's an idea though. What's on paper? Well, I need to see something like written out, and and so. So um, I think I think you made a good call because because yeah. building a building a content library and having more content means your bargaining chip is more. They're either going to break more and offer you more so you don't get less or they'll have the same offer and you can turn them down and you might get a surprise offer from somebody else. If that's the route you decide to take, who is actually really fair and gives you either 25, 20, maybe even 10 percent more than the last person. You get exposure and you get the fair price for it. You might even get royalties and stuff, which is really hard to come by in comics, period. And that's one of the things that in the tail end of the 
of the charred for Black Widow, even Captain America and the Falcon or Falcon and the Winter Soldier series from the original creators getting flack for because he doesn't feel he was he was paid rightly. And then I think he got compensated for the film itself finally after after so much length of period, because I mean, they just kind of took his creations and then made a whole movie about it. And then they don't get royalties for that because there's no there's nobody in a legal and a legalized role who's like, hey, um, this guy created this and he deserves this. So I think it's the right thing to do. It's it's everybody be quiet. And if 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 once he walks down the hallway, if he doesn't pop his head in here and say anything, we're good. Yeah, I think they get so I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I had some friends at Marvel that told me once. But I think he got it. I think initially, if you're if your character creation, is it Marvel? that does it? One of them gives you a five thousand dollar check and tells you to be quiet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, if your if your if your character gets used in a motion picture, you get a little five thousand dollar bonus if you ask for it. I think you have to ask for it too. Man, I um, just I can't. Won't say you told me that, but I'll I'll, I'll ask them. I'm I'm curious. I can't stand that type of business politics. It, it's not honorable. You know, they're going to make a couple hundred million dollars. A and you're going to get five thousand. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of corporate people are going to make a lot of money, but the guy who created it might get lucky to get his name on the film. I have seen more good fan films that have been created with studio magic from Adobe that have had more views on Facebook than any than some of the theatrical releases coming from Sony or Lucasfilms or even Star Wars, like the Vader film, the Star Wars Vader film that came out. That was a fan-made film. And it actually, Marvel's Disney side Marvels came through and was like, take that down. And man, so many people, they went to Disney screaming. It's like pitchforks and torches on social media. They're like, bring this back. And uh, they ended up letting them bring it back because there was a boycott against it. And this is one of the many examples I've seen uh, on the internet almost break the internet for for business politics like that i mean i understand copyright's a big thing but but um when it comes to the creator side executives making millions of dollars for just moving money around so that projects like that can get made versus the people um who who spent eight nine hours a day at the table making sure that the visuals and the characters had all these depths and details and speak to the audience and make people feel stuff get less money that's that's crap i was told when i was in hollywood time by a very cynical person in Hollywood. I needed to be real and realize there's one commodity in Hollywood that there's no shortage of, and that's creativity. And he says, and the guys with money know that. So sure, it sounds like we should all as creators be like, we need to stand up to these people with money. And so they start paying us better for our creations. But at the same time, the lure of I want to see my stuff get produced is sometimes bigger than our lore of trying to survive. Probably not going to Hollywood anytime soon, but maybe if somebody hears this, I probably never will. But that's okay, because thanks to tools like Kickstarter and uh, independent marketing companies who don't mind working with smaller brands and uh, make their reach more affordable by knowing how the AAA uh, marketing firms and knowing how they do business, who do good business, can help people like you, like me, who want to make it big and compete with some of these bigger companies and AAA books, make it more reasonable. They make can happen. They make the dream stay alive. And so I'm, I'm thankful for stuff like that. And this is one of the reasons why it brought you and I together is Starlight's out on Kickstarter, which is a great asset for creators to use to get their dreams, you know, made made into a reality. And that's yeah. that's really what it's all about, man. The, the, the heart of a creator is never giving up. No matter if a Hollywood executive tells you, this is garbage, uh, you bombed out, you'll never make it. Okay, I'll be right back going to Kickstarter five years later. How many issues do you have out of Starlight? How many more you got left to go? And they're all done? Uh, you proved them so all wrong, are, man. Right now we have three issues, by the way. 
Right. Uh, we're working on the fourth one four? right now. Yeah. Yep, and there's seven total. Honestly, today uh, we had in the last two days we had uh, three comic book shops call and make comic book shop orders, big ones. Nice. So it's definitely getting around. Uh, I hope it becomes a household name. Uh, in fact, yeah. um, in fact, if you want to, I could I could shoot a I could shoot your PR if that's okay with Kevin over to uh, my buddy Scott at Three Alarms Comics. I'll see if he'd be interested in buying a, a retailer's package from you guys. Awesome. Yeah, that would be amazing. All, all I need is permission to send them at least one or two issues. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, cool. That's that's awesome. Yeah, um, if you I, want, you can send them the first three issues. All right. Cool beans. I'll, I'll, I'll email them tonight then. Um, I'm all about helping people out, man. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast. You know, I filled in for the owner of Limitless Comics on one podcast. Um, he wanted to dip his dip his toes into it, but he couldn't make it. I was kind of doubling from his editor as like PR. So I was doing a lot of posts and I was making banners and graphics for him when he picked me up during the summertime. And I, was, I wasn't happy with the quality. And so I was like, how hard could it be to make a podcast? I've done a, a stop motion film. I've made a I've made an entire commercial from scratch. Um, I did voiceover assignments in school. I was like, this couldn't be that hard. And, and it turns out I'm pretty good at it. Um, so I like to help everybody in the creative medium. As far as comics is concerned, it's pretty much my career right now, and, and including podcasting. But I like to help out where I can. So I hope what I just offer you to is, is something that I can do for other people as well. Um, and maybe he'll have a positive response because Scott's a really good dude. And that's that's one of the reasons why he started his comic book shop and got into the shared comic book universe with Ming and them at the stash. Coming to a close here, man. I believe you answered all the questions that we talked about before and we ad-libbed for a while. That was really awesome. I think we vibe really cool. Uh, yeah, re- yeah. Really, really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> We're bonding in Murphy retrograde. I'll, I'll send you a picture and make you a meme of the star the star constellation <laughs> if I could find it. <laughs> so th- these these are these are some questions that, that I'm going to start traditionally asking and it's one of the ways that I'd like to connect my guests with my audience, connect me with you I get to learn more. They get to learn more. And um, the second question is going to be something for my audience to take away from the show, which is a staple of the show and one of the reasons why I got into podcasting. So if you could work with anyone from this medium, who would it be and what IP would you work on? It could be any any IP at all. Wow, man, I have thought about that a couple of times. And thing is, is the guys I want to work with don't match up to the IP and want to work with them. <laughs> okay, I can tell you, okay, here, here's two. All right, I would love to work with Kurt Busick. Unfortunately, he's one of the few other writers that when I'm around him in the last 20 years, I I nearly can't speak to him. I just, I don't know. I've always been a fanboy. So I have a problem with Kurt Busiek, but I'd love to write something with him as a co-writer and just bounce ideas and creativity off to kind of see how our narrative builds out. Right. Property-wise, this is going to sound weird. Can't think of any series that are out right now that I'd want to write on. But can I point out that I would love to see Gail Simone write star a couple issues of Starlight? Is that weird? No, no. Like, it's I know a-, a lot of writers get really in love with their characters and their creation, but I just right. like to see how Gail would write Sarah and Chris and Roger. Yeah, that that's actually really cool. I, that I love it when when other creators come on to other IPs. I, in fact, I think it, it it breathes life into the for, and into the content and the IP itself, and sometimes even redefines character. Yeah. If you look at if you look at some of the the big IPs that have been taken over by artist after artist, and there's always like that one specific writer or artist who came on to um, say like Frank Miller's Daredevil. When Frank Miller stepped into the role of writing, like Daredevil became a whole new Daredevil. It's one of my favorite interpretations of Daredevil ever. Aside from the one-off that Kevin Smith did, that one was pretty cool too. But yeah, that 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 would be dope. What yeah. specific? What what specifically would excite you though? A talent of her caliber that you look up to that you would like to see in Starlight? Oh, I just like her sense of humor, and I think she'd have a really fun time with those characters. And I could see how another writer takes them on that has a sense of humor that I like. That'd be cool. I think and she in- could really make Roger a little bit more nasty than I make. Him. <laughs> 
but but that, you know, that'd be perfect though because the the issue one of starlight that i read earlier and i i quoted that one phrase like there's creepers at the door mom like that <laughs> simple things like that are funny because i was focused answering the door and him being like who are you where you been are you this person i'm looking for these people <laughs> and, and she just slammed the door and it was unexpected it was it was perfect and so there's it's got a lot of comedic relief in there so that that'd be really cool so for the last question this one's this one's a bit loaded so be prepared if a new creator came to you and asked you for your advice about creating and publishing a book what advice would you feel is most critical to them and how would you articulate that to them i will tell you right now the way one thing if you're talking about comic books if a comic book person said i want to write comic books i would tell them to go and learn how the medium works for narrative because the medium itself is part of the narrative it's one of the reasons i love comic books even over working on film right. or you know working in novels and stuff or as a journalist right. comic books the page turn is part of how you tell the story the panels are how you tell the story where panels are placed on the page when both pages are exposed at the same time that's all part of the narrative and understanding how that works and how to take advantage of those narrative cues is a huge part of writing a successful story in comic books and, you know scott mcleod's books on understanding comics were eye-openers for me when they came out right. you know i think if you want to write comic you've got to sit down and really take a moment and read his book you know right. um because he's gonna say things that haven't occurred to you probably yet or you haven't realized yet you need to put the hours in to understand the medium in order to create a successful comic uh, no that you're exactly right I, I read the scott mcleod book in school too it was very and it's written like a comic book itself so it while you're reading it you're also learning how to move the eye vector lines how lettering works on a page if you follow the the scott mcleod character from panel to panel you'll start to notice after about 100 pages like there's a pattern you begin to understand as you're learning about comics from frame to frame, from from bubble to caption, that this is how comics move. I didn't really understand that until actually the second time I moved through the books. I had to read. I had to read it twice because there was so much information there that I didn't understand that I had to read it once for the sake of just reading it. And then the second time, I noticed that about 100 pages in, the way Scott McCloud was was moving around the pages, hiding behind doors and boxes and walls, the different types of dialogue that was coming through bubbles and then whispers um, and then statics and then bursts and then captions themselves, the different type of grammatical things you could use in there, like the, the double hyphenated and then the ellipses and uh, breaking up uh, text on the page. It's it's a, it's a really good read. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis has a, a book out too. Um, and I think I bought the one that Andy Schmidt wrote uh, for Comics Experience. Um, I don't I don't have the titles in front of me. I'll probably link them in the show notes just, just to add on to the answer that you gave along with the Scott McCloud book. Uh, so listeners can can go look those up. They're, they actually retail for about 15 to 17 bucks. So they're really cheap. So it's kind of everything you need to know about making a comic book. And then right. from there and from there, you, you work on your finding people, finding a, a committed artist who looks at art as work instead of commission. And then just communicate with your artist, write your script. Writing it is the biggest first step, really. Because uh, if you don't have anything written, you're not going to get anything made. Uh, here's an important thing, too. I, I will say this. Uh, I vomit on the page. I don't know if it works for everybody, but all the formatting stuff I've been talking about, right. when I write write my first draft, it's barely there. I go back and format. I just 
puke everything I can onto the page so I can get the story out of my head because that's the key. That's important. If you don't do that, if you get yourself worked up about, is this working? Is this happening? You're going to stall. So just vomit what comes on the page. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be gross. It's going to be chunky. And you can go back and you can form it in something beautiful. Yeah. And sometimes when you, if you don't vomit it out, as I've done this before, I do, I write from the hip when it comes to short stories, even short comics. Um, I do page by page and then I'll go back and then I'll worry about plotting and moving around different panels. If if I I think one panel needs to be on this page or if I, I need to break it down more or I need to flesh out that page into two pages because there's a lot going on. Get the get the story out on the page first and then you can go back and format it. It works for me sometimes, but for, for, for plotting, if you're going to write it out from the hip, don't try to plot because you'll you'll write yourself into so many white rabbit holes. Wonderland will be will be the shortest stop on your road to finishing anything. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, I do write all the way <laughs> the thing you just said not to do, I've done that every time. Hey, but that that, that might work for somebody. But well, that's but, what I'm saying. Like, what's funny is I give the advice you just gave my entire life, and then I go and sit down at the computer, and guess what I do? Not <laughs> right, right into right into rabbit holes. <laughs> Yeah, I just vomit the whole damn plot out right then and there. I mean, uh, I mean, but it doesn't work for everyone. No, it doesn't work for everybody. And and to add to that, to be more specific, when you're when you're plotting, if it's just like if you're not structure writing, which is different from plotting, because you're just following one character through like the natural hero's journey structure, and you and you're not worrying about turning points, you're just worrying about hitting those those key points that push the character through and the story along. Sometimes it's 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 good to exercise going down a rabbit hole, so you know exactly how far you're willing to take your character or sometimes that's even how you learn your character I, I went over this I went over this on a on a Facebook thread the other day and um, they were asking about how they how they write personality for their characters and I'm like well that for me that's tied to world building and the reason I say that is if you go to any country in the world there will always be a different type of food a different type of generalization like in the language uh, there'll be a different attitude the everybody will look different the styles of clothing will be different and the way people behave will be different. And the reason that is, is because they're in a different part of the world affected by either weather or uh, situations, whether it be living in the desert or living in the forest or living in the hills or living in a nice river valley with a nice stream in the lake. And it's like going from, from Midgard to where the hobbits live in, in Lord of the Rings. I mean, they're smaller. Um, they live in hills. They're more worried about materialistic objects versus, you know, politics, which in some of the bigger cities in Lord of the Rings, they're, they're worried about that. And and from there, you take a specific character arc from the traditional character arcs and you start playing around with conversations in between this. Is this person is this person more valuable and vain? Do they care about uh, looks? Do they not care about looks? Does this person, is he kind? Is he sarcastic as well? Um, do these people get along? And um, and world building plays a lot into that, which you sometimes have to go into a rabbit hole to find. So you're right. Sometimes it's not as easy, but for getting the story out, it's better to just vomit it in most cases, because you can always go back and write later. And and I'll leave I'll leave with this. And you probably agree with this because I've, I've learned this in school. I've heard this from execs. I've heard this from writers and creators and artists. Sometimes writing is rewriting. Oh, it's all rewriting. Right. You're not really writing until you're in your third or fourth draft. Right. Right. Which happens every time. Yeah. Every oh, time. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I worked on Hollywood and the main thing I worked on sometimes on was on a complete rewrite of a screenplay that had already been written twice. I can't wait to make it to that point. But at the same time, um, I, I dread it. Um, but it's television writing, something that I want to do one day. If I don't do it before I die, I'll regret it. So one day I'll make it there. Um, but I'm going <laughs> to do it. I'm going to do it through contests and screenwriting and contests. 
constantly writing, 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 writing all the time. And that's what you got to um, do. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've, I've read stories where it, sometimes it takes people 10 years. Hey, I'm going to live at least till I'm 80. I got plenty Most of my friends in Hollywood tell me that if you if you're in Hollywood and you're and you're playing the game about five years is before five people years. start to notice that you exist. That sounds about right. It's about 45, which some people yeah. say is too old in Hollywood. But eh, I've yeah. defied greater odds before. Yeah. <laughs> so Starlight Issue 4 is out right now on Kickstarter. Um, since we've been talking, you've had one backer. So you're out of 152 backers now. 18 sure. days Eighteen days to go. You're, you're at 4598 which is right there at the cusp of being $400 away from your goal. So if you guys want to, if you guys want to support Travis, I want you to support Travis. I supported Travis. Uh, I love Starlight as a series. I'm going to, I'm going to read the next two issues while I'm editing. Go to kickstarter.com and, and look up Starlight. Um, Travis, uh, could, uh, do you, I mean, do you like to talk to your audience? Is there a place where they can contact you? And, oh yeah. Yeah. I'm always on Facebook you? or Twitter, Facebook, Twitter, uh, at symbol web webworks w e v v w e r x starlight has a page usually greg or i reply it's a starlight it's s t a r l i t e so at starlight comic is usually uh we'll get to instagram twitter facebook you know and then easy way to get to the comic book kickstarter is uh starlightcomic.com so s t a r l i t e comic.com will take you right to the current kickstarter Every time. Nice. Which has 18 days left to go, man. And, and I hope you I hope you supersede your, your goal of 5000. Yeah, because I'd, I'd really like to get some of those uh, some of those uh, back tiers too, those unlockable ones. It's, it's going to be good. Uh, like I said, it, you, oh, I didn't say this yet, but in Kickstarter, you always want to double if you can. Yeah. Any, anywhere you can, however you can. That's always the goal. So um, that's awesome, man. Um, and for those listening, uh, please support uh, Comics and Pop-Tarts by going to Comics and N pop tarts the letter n lowercase uh dot com there's a i set up a website through pod page sign up for our le- uh our, our our letterhead to keep up uh, with updates on the page and to uh come listen to me speak with travis which has been an amazing conversation by the way it's some of the best vibing and jiving I've, I've i've had the pleasure of doing here on the podcast since july so i thank you for for your support man and coming on the show and i'm super happy about starlight i'm happy we got to meet and got to talk and and it's incredible that uh that the conversation that we've had super wealth of knowledge in this episode i'm truly thankful for your time brother thanks man Oh, no problem. All right, guys. My name is Limitless Mike. I'm the host of Comics and Pop-Tarts podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stay limitless.